Well, my first guest is Dr. B.S. Ajay Kumar. He's an Indian oncologist and entrepreneur. Not only has he opened cancer centers that are affordable in India and the United States, but he's written a book, Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Cancer Hospital Chain. Next, we're going to be hearing a story of hope by a woman named Hope, Hope O'Baker. She's written a book called Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light. And finally, March being Women's History Month, uh, we're going to be talking about women's history in the workplace. That's all coming up with Kitty Cheney reed on the way home with Laura Smith. And first, we'd like to thank our sponsors. That is Balance of Nature, Fruits and Veggies in a Capsule. Fruits and veggies, we need it. We need so many servings of it a day, but most of us don't get it. So Balance of Nature has come along and found a way for us to get this incredible nutrition packed into a capsule so that we can have our 11 servings that we need on a daily basis in a variety of 31 different fruits and vegetables. It's a unique system that doesn't exist anywhere else. There may be other products on the market who mention fruits and vegetables, but there is none other with this incredible ability to have nothing but whole food in the product. Balanceofnature.com is the website, and you can also call them at one 800 Two four six eight seven fifty one. That's eight hundred two four six eight seven five one. And when you do, make sure you put Laura into the promo code because that will give you thirty five percent off of your first preferred order and free shipping. When we come back, Doctor Ajay Kumar, don't go away. This is the way home. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. I'm fifty seven and poor construction and. I had a hip replacement and sore joints, not feeling too well. And I was limping around and feeling really depressed. I've tried different supplements and different things, but with Balance of Nature, my body just feels better. I don't limp. And it's kind of weird because I, at first I wasn't sure. And then a couple months into it, I just noticed I'm walking. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm not like sore. I'm not limping, nothing. I'm sold on it. I've actually talked some family members into taking it and stuff. I'm walking and everything's great. Whole fruits and vegetables are the perfect fuel to power the cells in your body, giving you the stamina you need to handle your day-to-day activities. And that's what Balance of Nature is. Whole fruits and vegetables delivered to you in a convenient capsule form for only 22 cents a serving. Balance of Nature provides you with a natural energy boost without a caffeine crash, a three o'clock slump, or an early bedtime. Our proprietary blend has no additives or fillers, just the full nutritional value of 31 different fruits and vegetables. I'm healthy. I want to stay healthy. I like the idea of what the product is all about. I believe in the body's ability to heal itself, and I also believe that fruits and vegetables from God's great earth are the best way to do that. This is derived right from fruits and vegetables, and there's no extra chemicals involved. And I thought, you know what? If I can just keep my immune system super strong, I'm in favor of it. So far, I've been able to avoid any sicknesses, and I just like to stay out ahead of these things. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code LARA. 
things that bring hope and uh, inspiration once again. So my guest today is, has a twofold story that's inspirational. First of all, his life story that took him into a direction of becoming what is called a doctorpreneur. We'll tell you all about that. And someone who's also giving hope to all of us in the world when it comes to cancer and its treatments. Uh, I'd love to really welcome Dr. B.S. Ajay Kumar, who has a wonderful book that came out in January called Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created World-Class Hospital Chain. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today on the way home. Uh, thank you very much, Laura, for having me. Thank you. This is really a double um, dose of inspiration for my listeners because your story is is so interesting. Um, and first of all, I just love hearing how people get from here to there, um, how they come to these major decisions in their life and what they go through on a personal level to to really fulfill their dreams. And then also just in terms of the treatment of cancer and what you have launched in the world is certainly something so incredible. So let's start a little bit with um, Excellence Has No Borders with the book, with the story behind the story. Tell us a little bit what happened to you in your personal life that led you to the new life that you have now. Yeah. All right. You know, I, uh, while I grew up in India, I immigrated to United States in 1975 with the intention of uh, doing higher studies in uh, medicine. And I was very fortunate. I was attracted to oncology because uh, at that time, you know, cancer was considered even today to, by some that is a dreadful disease. It's a death sentence. People mm. were always afraid. The word cancer itself was sending, mm. you know, shockwaves through people, families. But when I was, uh, you know, I wanted to understand cancer. When I was doing my internship in University of Virginia, I saw a lot of cancer patients in pain. And, wh and why is it we can't do some definite treatment, something which happens within your own body cancer? So I, while I was thinking, I was fortunate enough to be accepted at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, which is one of the major cancer hospitals you know, today. There I learned, it was a game changer for me. I learned a lot about cancer, treating even advanced stages. My my passion was to look at advanced and recurrent tumors. Why does cancer come back? What is this enigma about cancer? So while I was doing that, I trained in both specialties, you know, in radiation and medical oncology, I did a lot of research work. And I always thought of staying in MD Anderson, but the other thing was something I should probably do in future in India, where I come from. Can I bridge the gap between the un great unmet demand in India? I traveled to India in the 80s and saw the great divide and you know lack of technology, the need to bring in high quality of care. So I started working on that. That is why you know I started my practice. Uh, in a place called Burlington, where I really learned the ropes of how to start cancer center, what are the nuances of it. With that in mind, I, you know, I while I was still in U.S., I had a very good practice, by the way. People came from 100-mile radius to Burlington. Now, very soon, I started getting partners that built a big, big uh, cancer-focused delivery system. But I wanted to do something in India. In 1990, I started the first uh, private cancer center in India mm -hmm. and, and also a not-for-profit center. And I learned a lot. People, whether they are rich or poor, and does, cancer doesn't know rich or poor. It knows only one thing. You know, once a disease comes, it requires right treatment. So how can we bridge this gap? So with that in mind, uh, in uh, what I learned in 1990, in 2003, to make it very short, I decided to move back to 
India and use a hub and smoke model, a spoke model to set up cancer centers across India with the center of excellence in Bangalore. This is something nobody in the world has ever done. One single entity setting up comprehensive cancer centers across India. I wanted to model it across as MD Anderson with the center of excellence, but create multiple centers and use technology like telephysics, telemedicine, and teleradiology, tumor boards, all that so that it becomes accessible and affordable. And the problem in India, like unlike in the United States, a lot of people are paying out of pocket. So that also you have to address how are we going to bridge the gap. In fact, Harvard Business School did a study on us, case study several times, five years in a row, that we were able to create value-based medicine, you know, where you get the same outcome of cancer, but it's with much lower cost. That is what we specialize in. And we have now nearly 400 doctors and doing this to see bridging this gap and providing the same level of care along with research and academics. So this is something I, my vision was really to do something with a, which leaves a legacy lasting where we will be able to bridge this gap and even the the social economically poorer section can get the same treatment as what the wealthier can do and those who have insurance so that is what we have been able to achieve in the last 15 years and uh, doctor that's so fascinating to me because obviously yes there's the the difference in the the way um insurance works in america than what it is in india yeah. and so forth but but wouldn't it be great a lot of people and and i I don't want to say specifically where, but I mean, it's kind of in the conversation a lot that, well, cancer is a big business. That's why they haven't found a cure for it yet. <laughs> and, you know, and that makes me, it, I, I don't know how much truth there is to that. Um, it, yeah, and so for you to be doing what you are calling value-based cancer treatment so people can get these treatments at cost-effectively, does that also translate um, into the American market as well? Or is it, a different, yeah. a whole different model for India than it is in so here it in the does states. Translate to American model. You know, having practiced in America for over twenty-two years, one thing I can say is America has got great medical system delivery. As you said, the cost is the factor, and people really do not feel that because the insurance companies bear the cost. Now, of course, there is. Uh, you know, there is co-payments and all which is making people pay. And the cost is high because the standards were set very high, even in the 70s when I started. And, you know, for example, you do a scan called PET scan, positron emission tomography, which is the gold standard for diagnosing stage of cancer. In the uh, in, in United States, is normally cost anywhere between $2,000 to $3,000. Whereas in India, we do it for same machine, same thing, and a very qualified radiologist reading it at three hundred dollars. Oh my so goodness! That is, a, a... <laughs> that is the difference. You know, you, we we do an MRI for hundred dollars, where MRI is thousand five hundred dollars. So we have been able to master this innovation. You know, and it is primarily because of capacity utilization, and you know, and making sure their shared services. So with all this, we've been able to do that. And that is what I've even taken to Africa now. We also set up centers in Africa. But can it be done in the United States? It can be. But, you know, you got to realize one thing. United States is a great innovator. You know, a lot of drugs, a lot of technology are innovated. There is cost to innovation. Whereas if you look at India, you know, we don't, we are not that innovators. 
we kind of copy what is being done very quickly and do it. And that is part of the reason in the United States that these drug companies, these technology companies like Varian and all, they spend a lot of money on innovation. Maybe that is why the cost is high. And, you know, it has been like that for a long time. So I don't say it is right or wrong, but certainly, you know, the, the one thing I want to tell you about cancer is it is not a business. That is not the reason why cancer is, we are not found treatment because cancer is an enigma. Laura. When you, when you look at uh, two patients with cancer, why one person responds very well, why another person doesn't respond. And we have a very big genomic lab. We do a lot of genomic studies on this. We found out nearly 48% of the time it is because of the genomics. So nowadays we are moving towards from what we call as a protocol-based treatment to personalized treatment. So each person is different. You know, it is, you know, why is it somebody responds, doesn't respond? What is the story behind the story? What is the genetic history? What are mutations which are causing it? What are what we call as a, you know, micro environment of the disease which is causing? So it's very fascinating. So oh we have not God. even touched the top of the cancer treatment, honestly. There's so much more to do. But on the other hand, people with cancer, like lung cancer you take, People with even advanced disease are living for five, six years. When I when I started my practice, hardly three to six months they used to live. Now we are talking about living for six years, seven years. So things have changed for the better. Of course, the cost of the immunotherapy, for example, cost is very high. So all of this is because of the new drug coming and the cost. But eventually the cost will come down. As the drug go out of patent, it will come down. It is a matter of time. Uh, my guest is the wonderful Dr. B.S. Ajay Kumar. He has a new book called Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Hospital, a Chain of Hospitals. And, and, and that's indeed what you have done. I mean, you, you had to sort of reinvent yourself. I know you went through some personal uh, trials and tribulations and had to decide where to live and, and sort of live out the dream of, of building a chain of personalized, as you mentioned, personalized cancer centers geared towards truly helping the individual that's going through it. You've learned so much over these years. And um, I, I, mm. honestly, I don't know where to start because I, I've, I've watched many, um, some videos of yours and uh, the different research that you have done, as you mentioned, immuno immunology, and then also uh, just lifestyle diseases and also how people live longer in some parts of the world than they do in other parts. And so much research that goes into it. Do you have hope, uh, doctor, that we are really heading in the right direction with the treatment? Because it just seems like no matter whom I know, and, and everyone has somebody either in their family or their, their circle of friends that is diagnosed with cancer sometime every year, and, and people are. And, and it seems to be that the, the, uh, the treatment is sort of a one-size-fits-all. Like you were saying, it it, it's not, it has to be different, but yet it seems to be the chemotherapy and radiation. That's just the standard uh, way that people are being treated. Is that true or is that changing? And what do we have to look forward to? This, uh, all right, is definitely changing. In fact, in the last few years, we have not even come up with a new chemotherapy drug because we are now phasing out from chemotherapy even radiation now we do as what we call as focused radiation therapy. And we, we don't do, you know, large area treatment. Even surgery, we don't do organ, uh, 
organ sacrificing surgeries, everything is organ preservation, what I call as targeted treatments. So mm -hmm. this has brought in better quality of life to the patient. Even with cancer, we today we consider cancer as a chronic disease, like what we talk about diabetes or blood pressure. You know, we don't, you know, it's a lifestyle disease. They're all related to each other. As you may know, like obesity is the number one cause of cancer or no inflammation. So we are beginning to understand the mystery of cancer. And because of that, I think going forward, this concept of immunotherapy will take on a bigger role. You know, essentially, we are trying to make your own body fight against the cancer cells and kill them. That is going to give us the long-term control or even potentially cure. We are also talking about vaccination for cancer. A lot of things are there. But one important thing is cancer is very complicated. It is not a single disease. As I said, it's an enigma. As you treat one cancer, as you treat against one target, the cancer cells differ, develop different targets. So we have to keep on developing different drugs for those different targets. So this is the, this is the complex and this is the challenge we are going to face in cancer. But having said that, there are certain cancers which have come down. Take, for example, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, human papilloma virus related cancer, like cervix cancer has dramatically come down. And we expect even head and neck cancer to come down. Whereas certain cancers like related to lifestyle, like breast cancer, you know, colon cancer, or stomach cancer are likely to increase. And as people live longer, prostate cancer in men. So this is a changing demography as we see. But I think in future, cancer will not go away. But what will happen is people will like we live with diabetes. You know, we don't cure diabetes. We live with it. We control diabetes. Like that, we are going to control cancer and learn to live with it. Yes, it may be expensive. It may be this. But we have to detect cancer, not only early detection of cancer. We have to detect cancer coming back also early. Early detection of recurrent cancer. There, That is where we have not placed too much emphasis. And that is a game changer in my Absolutely. And and I've heard you say before that when people hear the word cancer, I mean, especially decades ago, my grandmother actually died the same age that I am right now of, of colon cancer. And my mom tells about how no one would utter that word. It was called the C word. No one would utter it. I don't right. know if they felt that it would because it just instantly meant death in the minds of the people who heard it. And so with that type of stigma and such, and you seem to think that now after all these many years and looking into the future, that it's no longer going to be that way. People are going to be saying, well, that's a treatable disease. One thing I want to say, Laura, is based on my own experience and the patient data I have collected, it is so important to treat cancer patient first time right treatment. See, the cancer doesn't give you many, many choices, many opportunities, but to treat obviously early stage is better. But even if it is not early stage, as you diagnose cancer, you should not rush with the treatment. You should take time to analyze what is the, what is this cancer telling in this person? What is the story behind? Why did this person develop cancer? What is the genomic history? What are the other histories? What did the biopsy telling? What is the right stage? And based on that, if you really put a protocol to treat that cancer properly, I think we will have a better chance of winning the war on cancer. And that yeah. is the key. Absolutely. And once again, uh, 
we just have a few minutes left. My my guest is Dr. B.S. Ajay Kumar and um, his book, Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Hospital Chain. Let's just focus for the final few minutes on the hospital chain itself. It seems like it's more and more popular to have a hospital that's not dedicated to everything, but specifically just to cancer. And you have started uh, this chain. How many, how many centers are in your chain and what are they called? They are called uh, Healthcare Global Hospital, HCG is the name. HCG, HCG. okay. And they are only uh, focused on oncology because, you know, you can't be a specialist in everything, Laura. You go to a restaurant, multi-cuisine restaurant, they can't be good in all the cuisine they make. Whereas if you can go to a pizza place, they're likely to be better because they're like that. We are specialized in making one product that is taking care of cancer patients. And that is because it is so complicated. Every three months, cancer care is changing. So for a multi-speciality hospital to say, I'm also good in cancer, I'm good in cardiology, I'm good in nephrology, it's difficult. They may be good, they're above average, but can't be excellent. That is why today people talk about MD Anderson, Sloan Catering. And that is how I created HCG Group of Hospitals, which is a doctor's driven initiative with nearly 400 oncologists. We started this primarily to make sure we have a focused factory approach. That is what Harvard Business School called as a focused factory approach. Only, only then you can succeed in your goal of providing the right care and spending enough time with the patient so that they get the right treatment. Absolutely. And this is a multidisciplinary clinic. Not one expert can make a decision. You need medical oncologists, radiation, surgical pathologists, molecular diagnostics, radiologists. The whole team has to come together to make a decision. And that can happen only in a dedicated cancer center, in my view. Absolutely. And and um, I, I think it gives great comfort to people to know that when they are going to one of your centers, that they are being focused on with with only surrounded by people that are dedicated to that that actual modality um, and to cancer itself. Give us the website one more time. I know you have wonderful uh, testimonials on your websites, because I think one thing that people need when they hear that they have cancer or someone they love has cancer, they want to know that there is hope. And I think having testimonials like you have on your website is just a wonderful it's a wonderful thing for people because you can actually type in the type of cancer that you're looking for and up will come a testimonial from a, a real live person, a patient who has succeeded through the treatment. And um, so tell us the website one more time, doctor. Uh, it is hcgoncology.com. 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 Um, oncology.com. Very good. Wonderful to know. I uh, could talk to you forever. You're such a font of knowledge for people to find you. Look at your, there's YouTube videos of you. And of course, to go find your book wherever fine books are sold. It's published by uh, Penguin in India and it's called Excellence Has No Borders. That's the name of the book. Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Hospital Chain. Dr. Jay Kumar, Thank you for all the work you're doing for, for the whole world. Honest to goodness, it's, it's a blessing. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All it's been best. an honor having you on the way home. We'll be right Thank back. You. Don't go away. I have a niece who, my actually my only uh, blood niece, or by, uh, I should say by design, is my sister's daughter who was adopted from an Indonesian uh, adoption agency uh, 
not 20 years ago now already. I'm just trying to think here. And uh, Amina is the light of our lives and the light of her, her mom and dad's life. And um, so adoption has always been something I've been extremely interested in. But there's someone who, here who has really a full spectrum view into adoption. And she has a, a beautiful book, Finding Hope, it's called A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light. My guest is Hope O'Baker. Hope, thank you so much for joining us today on The Way Home. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is a story that it might not be the typical what everybody thinks maybe a story of adoption is, um, which like in my sister's case was just an absolutely, you know, beautiful story of a they waited for, you know, years and and finally a little baby became available and they were living in Indonesia at the time and and uh and they, they brought home their four-month-old uh, daughter who is now in Syracuse University in New York City or up in state New York. And so that's usually when people hear birth stories, adoption stories like this, they, you know, they tend towards that type. But you have a really poignant, poignant story from a different perspective, and I want you to share it with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting you say that because I think most of the stories that people hear are from the adoptive parents. So you don't usually hear a lot of adoptee stories and especially not birth mothers, which is what I am. So when I was 21, I found myself in a crisis pregnancy and unplanned pregnancy. And I made the decision ultimately to place my son for adoption. And I, you know, it wasn't, it's never been without its struggles, but I'm fortunate to have an open adoption where I still get to see my son and I'm, you know, close with his mom. Um, but my book just really talks about just the struggles of being a birth mom. No, nobody gets it unless you're a birth mom. So it's hard to get help for it. It's hard to talk to your friends about it. It's just hard to go through life as a birth mom. Um, so I thought, okay, I've struggled alone. I've struggled with addiction, depression, you know, how can I help myself when I started an anonymous blog? And that got a lot of good feedback. So I decided to write a book and here I am talking to you, Laura. So <laughs> it was an right. interesting path to get here. Well, Hope, I'm interested. Um, so a lot of people, when they do choose to to give their child up for adoption, first of all, what what gave you that incentive? I mean, you said it was an unplanned pregnancy, but um so did you come to that decision on your own that you wanted to carry the baby to full term and then have it be adopted by someone that was a, a conscious decision of your own? Yeah, so I did. I mean, I did contemplate abortion and I actually did go to an abortion clinic and I was further along. So when they walked through, you know, how that was done, it just it didn't sit right with me. And although I am pro-choice, I just couldn't do it myself. And you know, after talking with close friends and definitely my mom, and that was just the route that I decided to go on. And I think, you know, I'm always a person of when I make a decision, I stick to it. So when I made that choice to go down the adoption route, I just never looked back and that's what it was. And, you know, I've never had regrets since. Well, maybe sometimes, but for the most part, you know, it's just, I've never looked back since I made that choice. Well, so, but you said that you also struggled with depression and, and addiction and, and some different things. Was that as a result of giving the child up for adoption and then wishing you had not, or was it just sort of the result of 
having a baby that you were no longer raising? Like, if you had made the decision to do it, were you surprised by the feelings that you would have afterwards? And and explain a little bit about what that process is like when you do give a, a child up for adoption. Nobody prepares you for what that's going to feel like. And because I did a private adoption, there weren't agencies involved. It was just, I, I met this woman, saw her adoption book on the side of Google, reached out to her. She was a single mom, you know, went and visited her, loved her. We just had lawyers involved. So there wasn't any preparation for what that was going to feel like. And so when I think about where the addiction and where the depression stemmed from, it's because I didn't know how to process what I was feeling. I knew that it was going to be extremely challenging, but I didn't know how hard it was going to be to exist in a world where you don't have your child. I mean, I just longed for him every moment of every day. And I couldn't figure out how do I process this? Because, you know, it's a conscious decision that I made. It wasn't something that anyone forced me to do. I made this choice. Now, how the heck do I go about my day knowing that my son's living here and I'm in a whole different world? And although we still get to see each other, I mean, it just, and even still like speaking that out into the world and, and saying it, just the, the gravity of it, and just existing two worlds apart is it's almost impossible. So, you know, I, the reason I think I, I did, you know, become, I call it a situational addict <laughs> is because I couldn't talk about it unless I was altered. Cause I was still, still in this like shameful feeling of this birth mom shame and judgment. So I had to be altered to talk about it. So what did that ensue? I mean, I just always, I wanted to be altered all the time because that's when I felt safe, you could say, and safe to speak my feelings into an existence. And, you know, I don't think that my depression started post-placement, like post-placing my son for adoption. I think I struggled as a teenager. It just amplified it. And mm -hmm. you, you know, you can talk to a lot of people about depression because how many of your listeners and, and maybe even people on this show, like, you know, have struggled with depression, but how many people do you meet on the street or are your friends who are birth moms? It's just, it's hard to talk about those feelings with people who don't get it because mm -hmm. it's hard to comprehend. Well, at the time that you did it, did, were you seeing any kind of therapist or involved in any sort of support group, or is it something that you just did kind of soldiered on by yourself or maybe with the support of your mom or your parents? Yeah. So with, my adoption, typically, if you go through an adoption agency, there's different supports like pre post postman place. And because I didn't end my adoption agreement, I think I got it was either three or five therapy sessions. And although that was extremely I mean, she didn't have to do that, but she did it. That was great. But when those sessions ended, you know, what do you do? And I didn't pursue therapy for a long time because I thought just, you know, soldier on, get over it because that's kind of what they tell you. And that's even what people in my life said is go live, be a college kid. Like, you know, I moved to Washington DC and was, they're like, just move on. You made this choice. It's done, but you can't move on from something like that. It just doesn't work. So, you know, I didn't go, I actually went to my first support group when COVID hit, like, because they all went virtual so every support group was now online and you could go to them. You didn't have to live in a city where they were. You could just go. 
So I didn't go to support groups and I, it was extremely challenging to find them in the first place and to find support and to find a therapist who has adoption training. And, you know, the therapist I see now who I actually met in this, in Mexico met her and I'm like, you should be my therapist, not my friend, which is funny, but she's not adoption trained, but she is trauma trained. And I never realized that there's different types of therapists because when I did try it just, they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't understand, you know, what the need was um, going on with me. Right. My guest is Hope O'Baker. Her book is Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light, sort of an adoption story from a different perspective as the mother who is giving up the child for adoption. We have just a few moments left, but I wanted to ask you, so the the way you um, created uh, the the setting for your son to be raised by this woman, you said you're still in touch with him and you're able to remain friends with his mother. So you're able to be with him on the journey. He knows who you are, I'm assuming. And, um, and you, do you have some kind of a relationship with him at this point? How old is he? So he's going to be eight in September and we do have an open adoption. So within our agreement, I am able to see him two to three times a year. I get these, I've got a whole bookshelf full of picture books that she sends me. He does, you know, he knows that I'm his birth mom. He knows he came from my tummy. He calls me Hopi. So it is really open, but I think because of COVID, right, we've all been separated. And unfortunately, I haven't seen him for well over a year, which has been challenging, but that's what the therapist is there for, (laughs) to help me guide through that. Right. And you feel like um, it's something, it's a process, ongoing process, but did you, do you feel that there is some coming to terms with, with that decision and, and coming into yourself and, and finding peace? Absolutely. I, I know that there'll always be certain triggers for me, but what I've learned is that, you know, starting days with gratitude and talking about my feelings and all of the, you know, those feel good things that people kind of giggle about, like those are real and just trying to, you know, envision more of a positive side. And if I am hitting a trigger, speaking about speaking about it rather than, you know, going into a dark place that I don't want to be in. So I know I'll always struggle with this, but I also know that I've learned tools and solutions to, you know, work through it and be right. a happy person. Well, and it's also, you know, in this day and age where it sort of seems like it's a black and white issue, you either, you know, you either have your child and raise your child or you have an abortion or something. This, I think, is a wonderful perspective in that there are alternatives. They may be difficult choices, but they certainly um, can be wonderful uh, for for people, both for the, the child and for their new prospective parents. And even you and the journey you've gone on, you're going to be helping a lot of people. I have a feeling hope O'Baker. I want to um, tell people how they can find your book, finding hope, a birth mother's journey into the light anywhere where fine books are sold. So you could buy it anywhere online, target, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Amazon, all the places. And you can okay. find me on Instagram at hope O'Baker, And there's a link in there as well. Okay. Hope the letter O 
the last name Baker, Hope O. Baker. She does a lot more than just write this very meaningful book. She has blogs and all sorts of things that she does and an influencer and modeling and everything else. Uh, beautiful person inside and out. Thank you for sharing your story. And indeed, um, I just think it's crucial right now in this as this time of a life that people know that there are alternatives and um, they can work out okay. So thank you so much for joining us, Hope. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Um, you know, over the years, over the past 25 years that I've been in radio, I have seen uh, very happily the numbers of women working in corporate uh, situations and even places like radio stations has really improved over the years. But apparently there is a trend which uh, the pandemic had had a lot of responsibility for, for reversing that uh, for women leaders uh, in corporate uh, opportunities and in big leadership roles. Kitty Cheney is my, Kitty Cheney Reed is my guest right now. She's the vice president of enterprise operations at IBM and the co-author of IBM's Women Leadership and Missed Opportunities. Kitty, thank you so much for joining us today. I am really surprised to hear about this trend, but then not so much with, with the pandemic last year and so many women coming out of the workforce. About how many women uh, kind of lost their, their jobs in the workforce last year in America? Yes, I think we were just as surprised as, as, surprised as, as you were. Uh, Laura, I think one of the things that the survey uncovered for us is the fact that we are not making as much headway as we would have expected in 2020. In fact, in some cases, we're seeing, um, you know, reverse progress. We're, we're seeing things move in the wrong direction. Uh, one of the attributing factors I believe, based on our survey, is the COVID-19 pandemic. It's forced women to make really difficult choices between family, responsibilities, and work. And, and really, the struggle of trying to balance those two has caused an adverse impact on the number of women that are actually choosing to stay in the workforce. Right. And, and, you know, with the advent of, you know, at home learning for the kids, it, it becomes a, a real issue, basically trying to juggle everything. But then also, I'm imagining that some businesses just really cut down on their workforce. Which was it more of? Was it women who just weren't able to handle the pressures of teaching their children at home and keeping their full-time corporate jobs? Or was it more that some of these corporations just had to let a lot of people go because of the pandemic? So, Laura, I think we've seen um, a combination of things. But the thing that stands out most is women deciding that this this is not something they can effectively balance you know the demands of family and work and um, the impact of that on them as individuals was just something that they needed to step away from and most of of our respondents have highlighted you know it as a personal decision to step away from work not being able to kind of weather balancing uh, both uh, family requirements. And, you know, it's not just childcare things either. It's, 
you know, taking care of aging parents um, Mm -hmm. or sick parents or sick spouses. Um, You know, it's kind of the unique um, challenges uh, that COVID has has brought to the entire population. Um, Even the dynamic of men not being able to to play their support roles because they're dealing with the same things has had an impact. Absolutely. So I know that IBM is usually at the forefront of a lot of these really astounding initiatives to kind of equalize things in the workplace. What is IBM doing right now? What type of initiatives are they doing to bring women back into these leadership roles? Um, I'm interested in hearing. Sure. Um, I'm very proud of a couple of things that I think IBM is doing to feed the pipeline, but also to help women return to work. So you might have heard about our P-TECH program, which is a a program that is going to sponsor about a thousand internships over the course of the next year. And those internships are for you know, students, college students, high school students that actually want to make technology a career and want to learn more about and get their foot in the door of, you know, a forward thinking company in terms of getting some experience in technology. Women and minorities in particular, I think, will find this program extremely appealing. So really starting at the bottom of the pipeline. And then the other thing that I think we are doing to help with reentry is we have a tech reentry program. It's a six-month program where we have a paid returnship for technical professionals who've been out of the workforce for 12 months or longer. Mm-hmm. The astounding thing about this program is that uh, 99% of our participants participants thus far, Laura, have been women. So I'm really excited about the fact that even though this program was not necessarily targeted to women, it has become a program that women have taken advantage of. So I want to encourage all women uh, to look for these opportunities across, you know, companies because they're out there. Um, And there is hope for returning to the workplace. and yeah, for those, I, I'm yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say I'm excited about this. I wanted to say also one of the things we're doing for those women who, you know, don't want to leave the workspace, but they they've decided they need to take a break. We actually have added a program where you can take additionally four weeks of, of flexible paid emergency leave. Uh, in increments of hours or days or the full month all at once to really uh, double click on family and then penalty free, you can come back into the workplace. That is really incredible. I mean, that is something that I think is was just like a dream for for most women, even men to, you know, to be able to have that type of flexibility. But that's one of the good things I think that did come out of the pandemic is people are finding alternative ways to accomplish uh, their goals within within their companies and their workforces. I love that idea of a paid returnship. I think it's just so innovative. And 
um, can ab- absolutely inspire uh, women to really take IBM up on that, to get into the workforce um, and learn more, but kind of easing back into it in a way that um, isn't quite so stark. I think it's probably very hard for for some women right now who have been out of work for the entire year to just kind of, like you said, just go back to work and um, try to get your head into that whole space again, like it was pre-pandemic, where it's just, you know, you go 90 miles an hour all week long and trying to juggle everything. This sounds like it's more of an easing back into um, work life and and so much support given by IBM. Where can we find out more information on this program? Uh, that would be great, Kitty. Yes, for sure. You can see the entire study on um, the missed opportunities um, and leadership study on the IBM website. So it's ibm.com forward slash IBV. You can find all of the details of the study there and uh, lots more information than we're able to share in our short time together. Absolutely. IBM.com forward slash I B as in boy, V as in Victor, IBV. Thank you so much, Kitty Cheney Reed, all you're doing. Um, it, it's inspiring. And, and hopefully by this time next year, we're going to see a real upward trend of, of women uh, getting back into their leadership roles with confidence and also things a little bit easier than they were back in 2020 up until now. Thank you so much for being with us today on the way home. Thank you. Take good care. I'm Laura Smith. We'll be right back. Balance of Nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. Let me just say, I'm a big fan. I've been taking your capsules for over five years. I've turned dozens of people onto you guys. I really am impressed with how you get fruits and vegetables condensed into capsules and keep all the nutrients. You know, just like some of your ads, when I go to see my doctor every year, he cannot believe my numbers on my blood work. He, th- he says, I'm, I've got the best blood work numbers he's ever seen ever for a guy my age. I, I really think you guys do a great job, and I'm impressed with your product. Experience the Balance of Nature difference for yourself. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 800-246-8751. That's 800-246-8751 or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code Lara. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, once again, happy Easter, everyone. I hope you had a beautiful weekend with those whom you love and uh, that it indeed was uplifting and positive. Well, that's what we like to do at the end of every program of The Way Home every week. So I have my guru of good news who goes out into the world and finds the greatest stories. Jimmy Dean, what do you have for us this week? Well, none of the three of us really had the pleasure of walking down the aisle, but uh, there's this couple in Iowa that did something very interesting for their 50th anniversary. Now, typical couples maybe go out, have some dinner, the wine, the dessert, the whole nine yards with that. But this couple in Iowa did something very unique. Their names are Carolyn and Kelly Gay. They got married at a church in uh, Iowa in 1971. 
And they decided to, to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary to do something very unique and very unorthodox. They wanted to create the wedding as it happened 50 years ago. I'm talking about the same church, wearing the same clothes, not having the 200 guests, just the two of them. You know, like that song Bill Withers did years ago, Just the Two of Us. Well, they did that. Uh, they got all the clothes that they needed, and they hired a photographer and took the pictures just as they were walking down the aisle. And uh, I just think it's a really unique idea. And along the way, uh, Carolyn pulled out some of the old receipts from their wedding from 1971. There were 200 guests at that time, and she this was very interesting. It was 200 guests, and the wedding and the honeymoon cost a mere $340 in 1971. Now, can you imagine for inflation how much that would be in today's dollars, what, 34000 So anyway, they just thought it would be nice to just go back to the beginning, the same church, and just recreate all that magic again, because they wanted to relive their 20s. They're now in their 70s. So, yeah, I mean, uh, just who else would do something like that? That sounds like a lot of fun. I would love, first of all, just to be able to fit into the wedding dress after 50 years would be, I, I would call it more like a miracle uh, for what, <laughs> if it were me. But anyway, that sounds like a lot of fun. Just a quick correction, though. Just the two of us, not Bill Withers, Bill Grover Withers? Washington Jr. Oh, that I, right? I was that. researching that. Yeah. Yeah. Grover Washington Jr. was such a beautiful person. I had the honor of. Uh, talking to him, interviewing him one time, and he had that song. But anyway, I digress. Let's go on. What do you have for us now? Do we have any time left whatsoever, Bob? Yeah, about half the time. Okay. Well, we'll get this one in here. Well, we had a guest on not too long ago, uh, Glintus McCants, the uh, numbers lady who does affirmations. Well, there's this educator in California who's been teaching third graders, and for the past 10 years, she's been doing affirmations with her kids uh, really just about every day because, again, affirmations is to kind of trick your mind into saying, hey, I believe in things. You know, you got to believe that, that saying from Tug McGraw with the Mets all those years ago because sometimes they get nervous before an exam. So she does these positive affirmations with these kids. And it just really helps their performance. And the kids just really love doing it every day. And uh, I don't know any other teacher that would do something like that. Not when I was in school. And I don't think when you were in school, because usually uh, we just you know, get into our schoolwork. But to do those affirmations, I mean, that's something that really is important. Yeah. Things like saying, I am strong. I am bold. I am smart. I am 